We'll hear argument next, number 971056, Naomi Marquez v. Screen Actors Guild. Jeunesse. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case presents three issues under the National Labor Relations Act. First, does a union breach its duty of fair representation by negotiating a contract that falsely tells employees they must be union members and pay full dues to keep their jobs? When this Court has held and the union concedes that neither of those requirements may lawfully be enforced. Second question is whether the National Labor Relations Board has exclusive jurisdiction over a performer's claim that the Screen Actors Guild or SAG breach its duty of fair representation by negotiating a contract that misinforms performers who have been employed in the motion picture industry for 30 days or more that they must meet their union obligations under a union security clause immediately upon hire by any employer in that industry. And third, is the employer a necessary party in this case because the plaintiff employee is seeking reformation of the misleading contract provisions? Uh, I will submit the last issue on the briefs today and only address the first two issues because neither the union nor the employer has opposed our arguments on the third issue. Of course, I'd be glad to answer any questions the Court has about any of the three issues. The first question is whether this contract breaches the duty of fair representation on its face because it says that more is required of employees as a condition of employment than can lawfully be required. Well, the uh, contract was written in the language of the statute, I gather. That, that is correct, Your Honor. It was and the statute doesn't make it all that clear itself, but I guess there's a judicial gloss on it. That, that's my point, Your Honor. This and court why, why shouldn't the, the employee assume the judicial gloss is there? I mean, why does it have to be spelled out in the contract? To, be, to put it simply, Your Honor, the employee is not a lawyer. A lawyer can be expected to determine what the judicial gloss on the statute is. What other portions of the contract that, uh, that are very intricate have to be spelled out for the employee? I mean, you, is that the obligation of a union, to make every provision of a contract that affects the employee clear to the employee? My goodness. No, Your Honor. Well, where do we draw the line? We, we draw the line at the union security clause because that is the only provision of the contract as to which the interests of the individual employee are uh, adverse and as to which the union has a duty to inform employees truthfully and fully as to what their rights and obligations are. Well, but, go on. but isn't the, isn't the fact that the union can do so other than by putting uh, an express gloss on the contract language or changing the language of the contract a sufficient response to, to the problem that you raise. I, I don't believe so, uh, Justice Souter, because the contract is the basic law of the shop. No, but the fact is the employee is quite unlikely, is far less likely to read the contract uh, than to have contact with union representatives who have, as, as, as you acknowledge, an obligation to explain, in fact, what those terms mean and what the employee's real obligation is. So it seems to me that you're arguing for, for a, a formality uh, which the average employee is likely, unlikely even uh, to, to take notice of. I don't believe that I'm arguing for a formality, Your Honor. I, I believe that, as this Court held in Beck and has held in other cases, the union has a, a duty to act fairly with regard to the, all employees in the bargaining unit, both in negotiating the contract and in 
enforcing it. In say, with negotiating the contract, I wasn't aware that Beck, if Beck said that there has to be in the contract this clause that you're urging, there would be nothing to argue about. But my understanding is that the, the contract not only reflects the language of the statute, but the NLRB's, what it was, is it Keystone Coat or whatever it is, their model clause. And the NLRB still hasn't gotten around to replacing that model clause. So whatever else this is, how can it be a violation of the duty of fair representation to keep in the contract what the NLRB and the statute say is okay, as long as the, the union notifies anyone who doesn't want to be a member? Right. You don't have to be a member. There are two points to your question, Your Honor. Uh, first, you say that the National Labor Relations Board hasn't replaced it. It's true that the Board hasn't replaced it, but in Electronic Workers uh, Local 444, in 1993, more than a year before SAG negotiated this contract with this employer, the, the Board overruled the Keystone Coat Clause, saying that it was, in fact, ambiguous and would have the effect of misleading employees. And, and secondly, with regard to the statute itself, the statute is not just uh, what the statute says. After this Court has authoritatively interpreted it and placed a, a, a judicial gloss on it, which, as uh, Judge Posner in the Seventh Circuit said, actually inverted the meaning of the statute, the employee isn't going to know what that statute means. The contract could say, well, Mr. go read Posner, the statute, and they'd still be su- misled. Suppose the contract had been written with all the complicated things you want in there, so that she would have had to come up with, what, $485 instead of 500 to join the union. Uh, she still wouldn't have gotten a job because she didn't have the money. How was she injured by the contract? Well, she was injured because the uh, casting agent in this case uh, enforced the contract as it was written, saying, you are not going to work tomorrow if you don't pay the full amount demanded by the union by 5 no, o'clock this afternoon. The point is, I, I guess the, the, you say the correct amount would have been $485 instead of 500 and the contract could have made that clear. But she didn't have 485 either. So... Uh, she still wouldn't have gotten a job. How did the contract hurt her, even if it had been written as you want it written? Well, there, there are two answers to that question, Your Honor. Number one, under, under this Court's uh, Hudson decision, the union would have had to give her notice of the reduced amount and an opportunity to object to its calculation, which would have been some period of time, typically 30 days. And by that time, she would have done the job and she would have been paid by the employer, and then she could have paid the union. In fact, she was willing, as she testified, at, I believe, at her deposition, that she would have signed an agreement. Well, regulatory, her regulatory lag would have, would have saved her. Is, is that Correct, Your Honor. That's, that, that's the first answer. And the second answer is that this contract is in uh, a sta- as the union makes a big point of in its brief, in a standard form contract that it uses with all employers. So Ms. Marquez is going to face this problem every time she goes to audition for a new job on a SAG-covered production. Yeah, but that's because of the 30-day problem, not because of the Beck problem. Well, it's because of all of the problems, Your Honor. She shouldn't have to uh, retain an attorney every time she goes to an audition. I I think Justice O'Connor's question was addressed to the Beck problem and saying, given the fact that she could not, in fact, have satisfied the obligation, even if Beck had been applied in the drafting of the contract as you say it should be, where is her harm? 
I think it was a Beck question. Yeah. Well, if you, if you focus only on the Beck problem, but if, if you look at all of the aspects in well, Let's which focus on the Beck problem, which is what I tried to get you to do, but failed. Well, I, I think I, I thought I answered the question, that, that the, the time lag that she would have been allowed under this Court's decision in Hudson to challenge that uh, calculation would have given her time to do the she job. She would have challenged it unless she had reason to challenge it, I assume. You mean she would r- routinely challenge it just for the heck of it? Just, I mean... No, I suspect that, that, Your Honor, by this point, when the union was, uh, when there, as you know, there is a question in the record as to whether the union, uh, the Ninth Circuit remanded for, for the district court to determine a disputed issue of fact as to whether the union was, in fact, uh, demanding full membership. But there's no dispute over the fact that they were demanding payment of full dues without saying she had a right to uh, reduce the amount under back. 485 any more than she could afford, could afford 500. I don't see how she's hurt, hurt. And I don't think it's enough to say, well, she might have protested it and bought herself a month. Well, she might have. She might not have. Well, I believe she has it standing. It, it, it's, your, it's your burden to show standing. Well, I, Your Honor, I believe she does have standing to challenge this misleading language because that contract is going to be there facing her every time she goes to audition uh, on a new SAG-covered job. And she, the, the duty of fair representation, it seems to me, is not met where an employee has Capable to re- of repetition and, and — and, um, Correct, Your Honor. Okay. The, employee, the, the, the duty of fair representation is not met where the employee has to hire an attorney to try to convince casting agents who are reading the language of the contract that they should apply the judicial gloss and not the actual terms but of the contract. I don't understand they're capable of repetition. She, she knows now because you've, <laughs> you've talked to her and she's read the brief. She knows now, Your Honor, but the casting agents at the point of hire who make these decisions to hire or fire don't know. And they, like the casting agent in this case, look to the language of the contract. When, when Ms. Marquez's talent agent on the day before the job was to be performed, talked to the casting agents, said, we have consulted an attorney. You are demanding more than the law allows. The answer from the casting agent was, we have a union contract. We have to apply that contract as written. We thought, that, lang- pay- we thought that language fairly meant what, uh, what Beck said. Uh, uh, how, how can we criticize the union for including the same language? I mean, it's sort of a dog in the manger thing for us to do. It was we who said that the language means this thing. Now you want us to say, no, the language doesn't mean this thing, and you should have explained what it really means. No, I, I mean, I, maybe I, you should ask some other court to do that, but this court... <laughs> This court says that language means this. And you now want us to say, no, this language really doesn't mean this, and you should have explained what it does mean. I'm not sure I understand your question, Ryan. What, we're at, what I'm asking this court to do is say that, that the judicial gloss should be in the contracts, Why? as well as in Why? the statements the union makes it, outside the it, contract. I- the fact that it's judicial gloss means that it is in the contract. That's what the judi- judicial gloss is. A- as to the parties to the contract, Mr. Right. Stevens, but not as to the man in the street, the average employee in the shop, the average shop steward. But is there any allegation that uh, anybody misled her as to what it meant? I mean, did the union ever refuse to explain this or anything like that? They have an affirmative duty to explain it. You don't have to ask a question. The employee doesn't have to ask the question to, to trigger the duty of fair representation. The duty of fair representation is a positive one that the union has to perform, even if the employee might fortuitously discover what their rights really are from some other source. The notice question is a different have- one, isn't it? The question of, and there's been a lot of litigation on that, too, and there's no doubt that the union has to give 
fair notice and the opportunity to do all that. So I go back to the question that was raised earlier. Is this all the most formal objection? I mean, everybody agrees on the substance of the union's obligation. It must notify workers that they don't have to join the union and they have to pay only for collective bargaining-related things. Everybody agrees that's the obligation. The only question is, must they put it in the contract? And I think we can all agree that most people don't read the collective bargaining contracts, but they will read the union's newsletter that will say you don't have to pay the full dues. I, I think it's, it's clear from, from this case and from other cases that the fact that the misleading language in the contract does result in people being affirmatively misled. Well, but you're by, by the union or by he? You said it was the person at the, at the um, employer's place. Well, in other cases, it's been by the union officials. And, for example, the Buzenius and the Bloom But here, there was nothing. The only thing that you allege that the union did is it copied the statute into the contract. You don't allege any misleading on the part of the union. But they knew when they copied the language of the contract uh, the statute into the contract that it could not be enforced as written. What justification is there for not putting it in the contract with the judicial gloss, which is very simple to do? Uh, so the where will it end? The where will it end? Argument is a, is a persuasive one for me. If I start uh, 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 having to interpret everything in the contract so that an on lawyer can figure out what it means, uh, you know, I'll be here all night. Where will happen to the well, legal it, profession? It, it will end. It will end with the union security clause, Your Honor. Because that's the only case in which the union has a self-interest in misleading employees. All other aspects of the contract are cases where the interests of the union and the employees are coincident. Here they are contrary. It, it might, you, I think, this principle that you should write all these things so that people who aren't lawyers can understand them may be a helpful principle, but I think it might be precatory. It might not be the law. Uh, all right? If I think that, uh, uh, so that you still can have terms of arts in contracts, uh, I'm still stopped by Justice O'Connor's question. And I want to be absolutely clear, because it sounds to me as if your answer is there is no answer. Now, I take it her question was, how was Mrs. Marquez hurt? Uh, and as far as I could tell, looking through this, you have lots of testimony that the reason that she couldn't join in any form was she didn't have the $500. You also have testimony in the record that her agents fully understood Beck. They understood the difference between core membership and non-core membership, and you have no evidence in the record to the contrary. Now, if that's the state of the record, then how could anybody say that this particular argument you're making, the fact that you'd have to pay $500 or $480 rather than $500, is an interesting argument, but really has nothing to do with this case, as far as Mrs. Marquez. I take it that was Justice O'Connor's question. I'm just being repetitive. But I want to be absolutely certain that there is no answer to it before I think that that's what you've said. Well, I had two answers to Justice O'Connor's question. One was the yeah. fact that, uh, as Justice Scalia uh, described it, the bureaucratic uh, lag would have given her an opportunity to earn the money to be able to pay the, the reduced well, I know. That I, that, and second, my second point was right. that this is a contract provision that Ms. Marquez has to face every time she auditions for a job on a SAG-covered production. We, we can count on the fact that she's going to be without 500 bucks for the rest of her life? <laughs> no, but we, we, Justice Scalia, we can count on the fact that it's, the likelihood is there that casting agents will continue to rely on the misleading language of the 
the contract but, because uh, they do not know the judicial right. gloss. But you, you have said, I think you have said in the course of your argument, that the union failed uh, in, uh, in the responsibility which you characterized as an affirmative responsibility to advise her about what her rights were. You did say that, didn't you? That's correct. Your okay. Uh, number one, you could, have, you could have raised that as an allegation and we'd have a very different case here, wouldn't we? We wouldn't be worrying uh, about the contract language. We would be worrying about the union's failure uh, to perform the obligation uh, that you say it has. Well, we so did, you, could have, you could have brought a different case, couldn't you? Well, we did bring that case, Your Honor, and the Ninth Circuit sent that back to the district court to, for the district court to determine whether the union failed in its duty in its statements outside the collective bargaining contract. The, the case okay, here so is that, limited that, to the facial language of this. That may be your avenue, but doesn't it also point to to the to the problem to a, to the your answer to the standing problem? And that is, you said to Justice Scalia, every time she looks for a job, the casting agent is going to hold up this contract. Uh, but that assumes that the union uh, is going every time. Uh, uh, when she inquires, to fail to tell her what she really has to do, i.e., tell her that she can get by with 480 rather than 500. And we can't make that assumption, can we? We can't make that assumption. In other assumption. words, you're saying what's no. wrong here is that the casting agent is going to give her the wrong information. It's going to say you're obligated to become a full member. And the answer to that is the union has an affirmative obligation to tell her that she doesn't have to do that. So that isn't the answer to your answer to Justice Scalia uh, simply the recognition that the, the union, presumably, in, in the absence of evidence to the contrary, will not refuse every single time to fulfill its, its, its obligation. Or she could just read the pleadings in this lawsuit. Do those but, I, but I have to return to what this Court held in Beck, and that is that the union has a duty of fair representation both in negotiating and enforcing Union security clauses to ensure that employees are not misled as to their rights. And what possible justification is there for negotiating a contract that states the bare misleading language of the statute when there is a easily described judicial gloss out there that could be put in the contract and avoid all of these problems. Well, as to the future, the justification is that, A, she knows what the judicial gloss is, and, B, there's no indication that the union won't give the same information to the casting agent, so it's not likely to recur. Well, I don't, I, that's an assumption I think we cannot make on this record, Your Honor. Uh, I, well, but I, is there an affirmative allegation on her part that she did not know what the contract meant? No. The allegation is that she was not informed what her rights were. But she it, found it out. Didn't have to be because she already knew. She, no, she didn't already know, Your Honor. She I found out fortuitously because her talent agent had had a problem in the past and referred her to an attorney because her talent agent thought that there was a problem here. But but the duty of fair representation surely does not put the onus on the employee. It puts it on the union. Mr. Lajonas, I've got a question about the, this duty of fair representation starts out as a rather heavy concept, race discrimination by the union. And now we're talking about what has to be in the contract as opposed to the substance of the obligation we know. And it seems to me to say this is a question of violation of the duty of fair representation instead of saying this is arguably an unfair labor practice, it should be go to the board and then be reviewed by the courts instead of rushing into court with 
this is the this is the union's really bad actor violated the duty of fair representation. When you when it's when the piece of this that we're concerned with is just what's in the contract, not conduct deceptive conduct by the union, but well, just what's in the contract. Well, that defense was raised by the union in Beck, Your Honor, and this court said in Beck that the uh, union. In negotiating the contract or in enforce it, enforcing it could breach the duty of fair representation by requiring more than is permitted by Section 8A3, and that because it's a duty of fair representation claim, it belongs in court. It is not preempted. Now, the Ninth Circuit recognized that with regard to the, the claim that what uh, that the union misrepresented what Ms. Marquez's obligations were and, and litigated that and decided that issue, and it's now before this Court. The Ninth Circuit, however, uh, said that the claim with regard to the 30-day employment in the industry clause was preempted and subject to the Board's exclusive jurisdiction. There is no logical reason, as uh, Judge, Chief Judge Posner of the Seventh Circuit held in Wegsheed, for, for distinguishing between statements in the agreement and statements outside the agreement. It's, that's exactly just what Justice Ginsburg asked. Is, well, I find a very difficult question, and why, why I'm, th- that's just what you're about. Let me flag specifically the language in Beck. Just after the sentence you said, they go on to say, employees, of course, may not circumvent the primary jurisdiction of the NLRB simply by casting statutory claims as violations of the union's duty of fair representation. And, and what I was having difficulty with in, in, in thinking of that second issue in this case is, uh, how, how do you distinguish where that sentence does or doesn't apply? I mean, after all, any claim that the union has violated the Labor Act, you could find some employee to go in and say they violated the Labor Act, and moreover, it violates the duty of unfair representation. There would be no primary jurisdiction left. Once we accept that, then what can the employee complain about? How do we draw that line? There's no brief here by the Board. I'm having trouble understanding how to draw that line between when you can and when you cannot, as an employee, assert in, a, in, a, in an unfair labor. You, you see the problem? I, I, I see the problem well, you're posing, but I think the Thank problem you. is not as great as, as, as you believe it is, Your Honor. The prob- there is no problem because the Court so held in Beck, and the Union concedes this, that where, in its brief, on page uh, 43, I believe it is, that uh, — I think it's page 43. Yes, it is. That the duty of fair representation is breached when the union misleads employees about their rights under a union security clause. I'm talking, I'm thinking about the 30-day problem. And they argue, well, if the, if the employee is misled about what their obligations are, that's a breach of the duty of fair representation and properly belongs in court. But somehow, if the union misleads the employee about when their obligations begin, that's not a breach. No, no, it wasn't misleading. I'm thinking of the particular claim, too, which I thought was not a claim of misleading, but rather the claim that you have to join after 30 days cannot be interpreted uh, by the Guild as a claim that you have to join after 30 days of work in the screen industry, even if those 30 days took place over a two-year period for 30 different employers. Now, I think your claim there was that that violates the language uh, or the uh, — violates 8A3. Well, our claim was, stated in the complaint, stated in our motion for summary judgment, argued to the Ninth Circuit mm-hmm. that 
the union breached the duty of fair representation by misrepresenting what — when her obligations lawfully began. Well, the, 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 the contract refers to employment in the industry, and you say the statute uh, makes it clear it's employment for that employer. Right, because the, the — So the, you say as to the 30-day thing, there was a, a, a clear violation of the statutory requirement. Well, so is there under Beck. It's, there's a well, clear violation of statutory Let's not get back into Beck. Let's talk about the 30-day. Now, as to the 30-day thing, uh, who has jurisdiction? Both the courts and the board. Both. Both and the Ninth Circuit thought, no, that it was uh, primary jurisdiction of the board. The Ninth Circuit thought no with regard to the question of did, did the union mislead her as to when her obligations began, but it said yes as to what her obligations are. And I don't see any logical distinction between the two claims. Either both should be before the board or both should be before the courts under the duty of fair representation. And this Court has already held in Beck the claims concerning the what can be brought in court and are not subject to the board's exclusive jurisdiction. There's no reason, as the Seventh Circuit said, to distinguish between claims of misrepresentation outside the contract and those inside the contract. In fact, here the, uh, the, the Court below determined the, the question of misrepresentation within the contract with regard to the what, but not the when. And there Why is isn't the when just a question of um, incorrect interpretation of the legal requirement? There's an argument that the law set means 30 days particular employer, 30 days in the industry. That's an argument about what the legal requirement is. Why does that also become a violation of the duty of uh, fair representation? Well, it was also in Beck an argument over what does Section 883 provide. And the Court said that the employee was stating a, a claim for breach of duty of fair representation. And, and you have to — Well, the question is what, what can you turn — what unfair labor practice can't you turn into — a violation of the duty of fair representation. And, and it's I don't hard for me can, to see what the line is between them. You, you can't turn most of them into breaches of the duty of fair representation, but you can in the context of the union security clause because of this affirmative duty the union has of informing employees truthfully and honestly of what their rights and obligations are. Any, let me sort of restate uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg's question a little more narrowly. Uh, can you tell us any statutory obligations of the union with regard to employees as opposed to rights and obligations vis-a-vis -vis the employer that cannot be recast as a uh, uh, breach of the duty of fair representation i don't follow your question justice Clay. can you can you think of any of the statutory obligations of the union with respect to the members of the union that could not be cast as a uh, claimed failure uh, of the duty of fair representation. Your Honor, I have to look at the specifics of the particular claim. Well, just give me an example. I, give I, me an example of one that wouldn't be a, a, a duty of breach of the duty of fair representation. Obligation of the union towards its members or towards employees of, of the uh, of the employer under the statute. The union violates it. And yet it is not a breach of the duty of fair representation. What, just give me one example and I'll be happy. 
The only duties that the union has toward the non-members are the duty — is the duty of fair representation. That's why I don't know how you get outside that. The union has an obligation to represent the — Oh, it has — it has an obligation to — to represent their causes fairly, given its other — uh, 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 its other interests in uh, in in uh, uh, grievances and so forth. That'd be a duty to f- violation. Of and and if in performing those duties the union acts arbitrarily, right. uh, discriminatorily, or in bad faith, right. then it has there's a claim for breach of duty of fair representation. So you think and you think as I do that that any any breach of the of the union's duty towards its members or towards uh, other employees. Uh, of a shop that it represents is a breach of the duty of fair representation. And that's what this Court has held, and it's uh, justiciable in court and not preempted by the Board's exclusive jurisdiction. I see that my time has expired. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Lajeunesse. Mr. Gaffner, we'll hear from you. Chief Justice, and please the Court, I would like to pick up uh, my argument in response to uh, Justice Ginsburg's question having to do with (coughs) with the burden or the obligation of the duty of fair representation, uh, which started out, as we know, in the racial discrimination and led into Baca versus Sipes involving individuals and into the O'Neill case where the Court addressed the question of what is the duty in the negotiations of a collective bargaining agreement, uh, which is the issue in the effect aspect of this case. the, the factual determinations as to whether there was a violation of the duty of fair representation regarding uh, notice to her or information to her has all been remanded to the district court. The district court on summary judgment found that there was no violation based on the uh, depositions and the uh, discovery procedures and had granted summary judgment. This is after the remand from the Ninth Circuit? No, no, Your Honor. Before? Before, yes. The Ninth Circuit felt there were some factual issues that should be uh, resolved by the trial court, the district court, uh, prior to uh, looking at a summary judgment. At least there are none of facts to justify a summary judgment. Uh, the, the test in, this, in negotiating the contract in terms of the duty of fair representation is a very, very heavy one. Uh, the uh, O'Neill case very clearly stated, and the language is very strong, that not only is the union action has to be arbitrary, but in light of the factual and legal language at the time of the union's action, the union's behavior is so far outside the range of reasonableness so as to become irrational conduct. That was the case in Beck? This is the O'Neill case, John. No, no, but I mean, you think that that, 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 that description is a fair uh, description of what happened in Beck? Not at all, Your Honor. Yeah. No, of course not. That was held to be a breach of the, duty, uh, of the union's duty of fair representation. That, Your Honor, I don't think the, the Beck case held, in our opinion, that the duty of fair representation was violated in terms of outside of the statute. 883 was used as a defense by the union, which was rejected by the court, and the court said that the duty was violated because there's a basic principle that it's a violation to collect dues uh, from a employee under a union security clause that went for political... Even when the statute says, even when the statute says you can require people to be members of the union. Well, there was a vigorous dissent in the Beck case, as Your Honor well knows, yes. I'm I'm, I'm just saying your your, your description of what our case law says is necessary for a duty, a a violation of a duty of unfair representation is simply not accurate when you you take account of of, of Beck, as as you must. Your Honor, Beck Beck did not address itself to the uh, negotiations or the language of the contract. In fact, we would argue that the 
that case implied that the contract was valid and that it was the implementation in terms of the collection of excess amount of dues was where the violation occurred. Uh, and that has to do with the implementation of the clause, uh, the Union Security Clause, not as to the language, not as to the negotiations. Uh, that is where this burden that I've just described comes into play. And we would argue that if you take this standard of irrationality or beyond the range of reasonableness, then how can it be unreasonable? How can it be irrational for the Union to negotiate a clause that is traces and tracks almost word for word the statute of 8A3? Well, it didn't track the statute on the 30-day provision, did it? That is a different question, yes. uh, Mrs. O'Connor. I, I believe that is a different question. That I, I'm not sure you want me to address that, that part of the case, but uh, I would — it's that part of the case that I'm finding the most difficult part, because I don't know what the — you, in your brief, take an opposite position, and it seems like a very important question about when and under what circumstances a simple statement of a worker that the union has violated its duty of fair representation gets that worker into court where what is alleged is that the collective bargaining agreement has a term in it that violates Section 8A3. It's not a claim. It's saying that they're — and that's what they're arguing here, isn't it? Yeah. Well, All right. Well, what's right. the standard? Beck well, seems to, by and large, say that the worker gets into court simply by saying violates the duty of fair representation. But there's a sentence that I read that suggests that under some circumstances you can't get into court because to do so would destroy Garmin. It would destroy the primary jurisdiction cases. Now, what I'm lacking is the standard to distinguish the first from the second. Well, I, it seems important. Maybe it isn't for some reason, and I'm not an expert in labor law. Well, I, I think it's very important, Your Honor, and the standard is a very, very difficult one. Uh, but uh, the Beck case, uh, as you may recall, the theory of the plaintiff in the Beck case was based on three uh, reasons. One, that it was a violation of 883 and 8B2, and therefore, uh, per se, then there was a violation of the duty of fair representation. And second was that there was a constitutional question. And third, that there was a pure and simple duty of fair representation that had to do with how the union collected its dues and whether it collected excess amount of dues over objections of an employee for political purposes. The Court very clearly, in fact, I think this was a unanimous opinion, the dissenters also agreed with this part of the Beck case, that the claim as to a constitutional issue was not to be decided, it was put aside. Clearly, the Beck Court said that the issue of being an unfair labor practice, and that in itself, by violation of 8382, made it a violation of the duty of fair representation, was not the law and was not the basis for the Court to proceed to find that there was a violation. In, that, in that part of Beck, the lawyer had characterized the claim yeah. as a violation of 8A3, unfair labor practice. In this case, the lawyer has characterized the claim, though a similar kind of claim, as a violation of the duty of fair representation. Well, it comes right under that heading in the complaint. Well, then I think, Your Honor, we, we get into the question, can the primary jurisdiction of the Board be totally destroyed in this area, which it would do, because the, the argument then would be any violation. That's why I'm asking you for a standard that distinguishes the sheep from the goats. Well, I, I would contend, Your Honor, that we have to look back to uh, Lockridge, which discussed this issue in very great detail, and Judge Harlan had a great discussion of how you find the standard. It's a difficult one to find. Uh, but uh, I think that the basis, as we would contend, would be that when it's a primary jurisdiction has to do with a clear and 
violation of the statute here. It's clear they're saying that there's a violation of 883, 8B2, because we didn't allow the grace period of 30 days. That is or is not a violation of 883 and 8B2. It has nothing really to do on any representations, any misrepresentations, any hostility, uh, any of the factors, bad faith, that goes into to make up the duty of fair representation. All the standards of duty of fair representation are not present. It's pure and simple. Was there a violation? Was the 30 days permissible or not permissible? It's as simple as that. And the NLRB, uh, when it, that case comes before it, some future time will decide. They'll say, no, the union was wrong. They didn't apply the statute correctly. It's therefore an unfair labor practice, and there's a remedy available to uh, Ms. Marquez or any other employee that files the charge. Well, are you or saying that say, the, excuse me, Mr. Gibbons, are you saying that the line should be drawn depending on whether the violation is clear or not? No, I think if the violation is clear, then obviously the Labor Board has the authority and the jurisdiction to, under primary jurisdiction, to grant relief. Okay, but if Even it's not clear, violence. are you saying that in cases in which it is not clear, that's when there is this different jurisdictional option and they can commit a court under unfair labor? Well, if it's not clear, unfair and, representation. If it's not clear, then I believe the standard that the courts would have to look as to whether it's primary jurisdiction with the Labor Board not only the pleadings, which obviously can be clothed and colored any way the plaintiff wishes to, to color it, is that is there an interpretation, assuming it's not clear? Now, you take the 30-day clause here. No, but I, uh, I don't — I want to hear you, but I want to, want to stick to my question for a minute. I take it your answer is, no, I am not saying that we decide whether something must be brought as an unfair labor practice before the Board, depending upon whether the statutory violation is clear or merely arguable. That's not the line that you're suggesting. No, I'm not. If you're not saying that, what are you saying? Yeah. What is the line? Well, I'm saying that that if if it's a clear violation of of the statute, 883, 8B2, then the Board has the primary authority to issue a complaint hold a hearing and to find Well, but that, that sounds like you're simply retracting what you said a moment ago. I thought in answer to Justice Souter's question, you said the distinction was not between whether the violation was clear or not clear. Now you're saying that if it's clear, it goes to the board. Well, but that doesn't make any sense. Well, maybe I misspoke. I, I intended to answer the question that if it's clear or not clear, it does not deprive the board of labor of, of primary jurisdiction. So lack of clarity has nothing to do with it. Is that right? Well, no, I think lack of clarity is an important issue because, and I want to use our case as an example, because 30 days in the statute says 30 days. It's not clear which 30 days we're talking about. Now, this is an issue that should be decided under, under the Labor Act by the NLRB under their primary jurisdiction because they are the body with the expertise to look at the entire industry, the motion picture industry, the hiring practices, the issue of a multi-employer bargaining unit where it's permissible under board cases that you can work for different employers and tack on uh, grace periods, uh, and that goes to the intent of the parties where they have a multi-employer bargaining unit. These are all questions for the expertise of the administrative agency, of the NLRB. These are not really questions for the court to decide how under do, a how do we know the representation standard. So how, how can you — how do we tell the difference? between the ones which are cases for the expertise of the board and therefore must go first to the board, or ones can, that can be brought into court? You haven't told us. Well, I, I'm not sure I can give a, a, a broad standard in terms well, of could you give a narrow case. standard? Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll try. I believe the narrow standard — Make us an offer, Mr. Gettner. <laughs> All right, Your Honor. I, I, are we in bargaining now, Your Honor? <laughs> 
I think this case presents the perfect example of what we're talking about. It's a narrow issue, and that is that the, the pleadings seem to mix up duty of fair representation as a violation of 883, 82. This question of how the complaint is worded. When you cut through the substance of it, substance of it is there has to be a finding, and this should be done by the Labor Board first, and of course reviewed by the courts, is that when the parties negotiated this contract that said 30 days, did they violate 883 and 8B2? Now, the NLRB has to look at a numer- numerous number of factors. They have to look at the industry, they have to look at employment practices. As I said earlier, the multi-employer unit question, that is not an, a function of the board, of the courts to decide as an initial matter under the guise of a duty of fair representation claim. This is beyond, belongs to the expertise of the Labor Board. That's but why they want to set them up. On the other question, too, why shouldn't the board say whether it belongs in the contract as opposed to Suppose, suppose, for example, the board had said, we're doing away with our old learning. We're adopting what Chairman Gould had suggested that we adopt as the new model clause. And then the union doesn't use the new model clause. It uses the one that it's been using from the beginning of the Taft-Hartley. If that were the case, then wouldn't there be a violation of the duty of fair representation? Well, it certainly would be a, a violation of a being unfair labor practice. Uh, yes, case, but, the, uh, but the, the question could always no, — as I understood, Mr. Lajeunesse, there's no question that the Board has jurisdiction. He's not arguing for exclusive court jurisdiction. He's saying that they both would have jurisdiction. You're saying that, at least with respect to the 30 days, only the Board has jurisdiction. Well, primary jurisdiction, Your Honor. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, but with review in, yes, in, in the Court of Appeals, not in the District Court. Correct. But I, the, the, the question is, are they all both, as Justice Scalia suggested, whenever employees are effective, then, then it's a choice to go directly to court or go to the NLRB? Well, uh, of course, in, in the context of the factual situation in Beck, which was really decided essentially that there's a separate duty of fair representation not to collect excess dues, that could have been an unfair labor practice and the Board had jurisdiction. The Beck case said that under that theory, but there was jurisdiction on a violation of duty of fair representation. I don't think we can quarrel with that finding of Beck. It did say that. Uh, but that had to do with what had to do with the enforcement, with the collection, and how dues were collected and in what manner in terms of excess amount of dues. That's where the duty arose in terms of the court jurisdiction on the DFR, a duty of fair representation complaint. Mr. So the board would have concurrent jurisdiction as well. Could, could a line be drawn uh, this way, that by, by recognizing that the decision in Beck, the construction of the statute that the Court announced in Beck, was at least driven by a concern over First Amendment issues. And therefore, uh, could we say that if, in fact, the argument that is brought is an argument which depends, uh, which, which, which would, 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 uh, would uh, if it's a statutory interpretation argument, that would uh, depend on or turn on a concern over constitutional issues, perhaps avoiding constitutional issues, that that would be an appropriate case uh, to bring in the first instance in a court uh, under fair representation, because that's not the Labor Board's principal subject of expertness. 
whereas if the interpretive issue does not have constitutional implications, you ought to start with the Board uh, under unfair labor practice. Is well, that I, a way we could draw the line? I, I think that would be a very, very rational way to draw the line. I think uh, applying Beck, I think that's exactly what happened in Beck. But then uh, I think you'd have Mr. Lajeunesse back in court in this case saying that there are perhaps constitutional implications here. Now, perhaps they wouldn't be very strong ones, but I think that would underestimate the ability of lawyers to cast their claims in constitutional terms. I'm not sure of that, Your Honor, but the, 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 the problem in terms of avoiding constitutional issues, which, uh, of course, the Beck said it was not involved in that case, but I think uh, I agree with Justice Souter that in relating back to the street case and the Railway Labor Act, of which Beck was based on, that there were, at least in the background somewhere, some constitutional issues about collecting money uh, from people over their objections for political activities. But uh, beyond, beyond that, it seems to me that the uh, constitutional questions really are not faced in this area because any doubt, any doubt, even if you want to raise the dignity of a constitutional question, is resolved by the point that was made, I believe, by Justice Ginsburg, and that is the union is required. And there's a very clear body of law that has developed in the last few years by the NLRB and also by the courts uh, in California Saw and Knife and the Paramax case that there's a affirmative obligation for the union to notify every person that's subject to the union security clause uh, of their back rights. Uh, in fact, they go even further. They have to advise them uh, of, of numerous rights that flow from, from the Beck decision. That is an obligation uh, that goes beyond anything that a contract might do, as I believe one of the justices pointed out, because that obligation that the board now, and labor board is now imposing has to be shown that it, the individual received that notice, whether through a newspaper, whether through a mailer, or whether through an application form, uh, whatever vehicle is used, that notice has to be given. Uh, and that's where any constitutional question of somebody being deprived of their property uh, against their objections for political reasons is clearly avoided and clearly So the uh, Judge O'Scanlan didn't rely on the Constitution. No, he seemed to draw a distinction between a claim where well, the main claim does not depend on a violation of 8A2 or 8A3 and a claim that it only collaterally involves on it. I think I say clear, clear, Justice you, I, 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 I agree with Judge Scanlon. I was going to ask you if you, you I, walked I away from memory of endorsement. I circuit. I, I was responding, I believe, to Judge uh, Souter's question, or Judge Scalia's question, that perhaps in the background, when the Court decided the Beck case, uh, there was some concern of a constitutional question that didn't involve political activities and collecting dues for political activities. And the Beck case clearly tagged on to the street case, which is a Railway Labor Act case, which did involve uh, a constitutional issue because uh, of the statute being drafted and written separately and differently from the Taft-Hartley Act, which uh, Beck case said did not involve a constitutional issue. But uh, I simply agree with Justice Scalia that somehow you could look up in the sky and pick that issue out of there. But clearly the, the holding of the Beck case is not on constitutional questions. The Court was very clear that that basis for relief uh, that was, was urged by the, by the petitioners in that case was not the grounds for the So, so how, how do you think about it as a labor lawyer? I mean, I, I take it this is the only case in which uh, this issue has arisen. I couldn't find any other. I've, this one case, this one way, and a dictum by Judge Posner the other. So, so we haven't had a problem of labor lawyers uh, representing workers running in and recharacterizing uh, uh, NLRA claims uh, as uh, unfair discrimination claims. That hasn't happened. So that there must be some uh, line in a practicing lawyer's mind uh, 
otherwise we'd perhaps face dozens of, of these recharacterizations. Well, so what is it in your mind? What is it that, that leads you? I'm just still driving for the standard. Well, uh, you, you must have one there. Well, I, uh, I'm not so sure I'm so, so wise as to have one, but uh, I, my, 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 our thinking would be, Your Honor, that the standard that would be applied, that uh, may be a difficult one, is that would be, one, uh, is, the, is the claim of the duty of fair representation really something that's separate from a pure statutory violation? If, some, if the duty of fair representation was really a judicially declared uh, requirement if, if, you know, coming out of this the early cases on racial discrimination uh, through Vacca versus Sipes, the Court said the Labor Board isn't dealing with these kind of issues. The courts must deal with them because the uh, union is the exclusive representative and there should be some protection for an individual against the majority on some kind of abusive or bad faith action. So it, it really was a, a judicially uh, imposed requirement on the union, not, not, a, not a statutory one as such. Uh, I think that is part of the one standard that I would suggest. The other, I would suggest, is the one I said earlier, and that is, is it the kind of an issue, getting beyond the pleadings, is it the kind of issue that really is it requires the expertise of the administrative agency? Is this the kind of an issue that really the Court shouldn't be dealing with, certainly not as on a first impression, maybe on, on a petition to review but, or to enforce, but as a first impression, and I, that's why I emphasize the 30-day case is a perfect example, because we don't know. The Board hasn't really ruled on this 30-day clause, and there's so many factors. It involves industrial relations, involves the motion picture industry, involves how you are employed, how you involve freelance employment. What, what if the Board had ruled on this clause, Mr. Geffner? Then could an employer in Mrs. Marcus's situation bring an action in court? An employer, Your Honor? An employee. Yeah, an, an, I'm sorry, an employee. I'm sorry. Yes. No, I think in that case there would be a clear violation of, the, of 8A3 and 8B2. Her, her remedy would be to run down to the Labor Board and file a charge. So if the Board's ruled on it, you have to go to the Labor Board, and if the Board hasn't ruled on it, you have to go to the Labor Board. Well, I can't categorically say that would be the case because there could be situations that it could be both. Uh, as, uh, what would be those situations? Well, I think the Beck case is an example. Where well, the, what besides Beck? What besides the Beck? Yes. Uh, well, I... <laughs> On a duty of fair representation, uh, there could be some uh, abusive action uh, against uh, by a union against an employee uh, that uh, the board had jurisdiction, where it's a violation of the employee's Section 7 rights, would be unfair labor practice, but it also might be uh, a tortious action against the individual, uh, or it could be some kind of uh, group action where there's a violation of either the common law or there's a uh, the broad, the broader definition of the duty of fair representation, that's, it could be a situation of that kind, you know. The O'Neill case uh, set the standard of the duty of fair representation. Uh, in that case, the specifics involved the negotiations of a contract and a settlement agreement. Uh, the Court found that the, the union didn't violate that standard, but it could have gone the other way. And there you would have had a case where there had been a violation of the duty of fair representation and very likely would be an unfair labor practice, possibly under a violation of Section 7 or possibly even a failure to bargain. That could be numerous areas of the Taft-Hartley Act that could be urged as an unfair labor practice. So there are situations where there's a crossover, uh, and where you draw the line, I think all we can do is look at what Beck said and what Lockridge said, where Judge Harlan discussed this. What, what do you say? And I suggested two standards uh, that uh, What would you say should be? What is the remedy? Just if by coincidence 
I've read, as reading the record, it sounds as if what Mrs. Marquez was actually upset about, at least originally, was she said to the union, take the $500 out of my first paycheck, please. I don't have the money on me. I just don't have it. And the union, instead of saying, okay, said no. Now, it, I assume that seems, given her side of it, that that wasn't very reasonable. And suppose that she's right about that. What, what kind of remedy would the law permit? Well, it, it, uh, she could have filed a, a charge with the Labor Board as a violation of 883 and 882. The Board would then have the jurisdiction to give a remedy to her, which would have been back pay uh, for losing the one day's uh, work. Uh, that would probably be a fairly complete remedy. I suppose uh, you could argue that uh, because uh, she was badly treated as an individual, there was bad faith in her treatment outside of the statute, that the union then created a hostile and arbitrary action. It might be a duty of fair representation. Uh, but those are the issues uh, relate really to the kind of issues that notice goes to and information goes to. And that's what we're dealing with here, and that is where the Labor Board has set up an elaborate system of notice requirements, which takes care of any problems that might be coming out of uh, any misunderstanding of the contract language, which we go back to the main issue in the case. But the, the, the board can the award damages against the union measured by back by lost pay. It can award lost pay, yes. Mm-hmm. Against the union. Against the union, yes. Mm-hmm. That would that would be the remedy if the union violated uh, the AA 83 and 8B2. That would be the uh, traditional remedy is the back pay remedy, yes. Mr. Geffner, at some stage, the SG told us that this matter was before the Board, this matter being whether the Beck language must be in the contract clause and not simply in a notice that the union separately gives to workers. Uh, is it before the Board? Uh, no, Your Honor, that's, that's, not, that's not, my, not my understanding of the law. The, the Board at this point, you may recall, in 1958, in the Keystone Cloth case, said that membership in good standing is the model clause. Yeah, and but we've been told that, that it's moved, that ahead. That was it's moved ahead. Rejected yes. by the board. After Beck, Beck case, in the Paramax case, the board said that the clause is now ambiguous, but not facially invalid. Now they say it's ambiguous, where before they said it was not ambiguous, and they said the ambiguity is cleared up and remedied by these outside notices that have to be given uh, to the individuals. So that clarifies the, the ambiguity. Now, the D.C. Circuit reversed the board and said, no, that, the clause is not ambiguous. The clause is facially valid and reversed the board on that issue. And now the board is wrestling with the consequences of, uh, of, that, of that decision. Uh, and there's some dissension in the board itself, actually, uh, on that issue right now. But cases on record, cases on record, the Paramax case, uh, says very clearly that's ambiguous, that's their position, but not facially invalid. And that's been, as I said, was been reversed by the D.C. Circuit in saying that it was facially valid and all the notices uh, were adequate uh, to protect the individual against any misunderstanding. Uh, in a few moments, I'd like to just stress one point here in terms of uh, the, the, the drastic remedy that the petitioners are asking in this case to declare a collective bargaining agreement clause invalid. And uh, the, the petitioner and uh, I believe the a circuit who follow their argument uh, seem to think that the union has the right to unilaterally just modify a collective bargaining agreement and just simply change it to make it clear just by some just miracle, some wave of the hand. 
It's not the reality of, of labor relations. If the clauses are declared invalid, then the union has to renegotiate with the employer. Clauses that have been in effect now for 50 years, uh, contained in thousands of contracts in this country, the union would have to go back to each employer and renegotiate the contract. And that raises all kinds of questions. That means that if the employer doesn't agree, can the union now strike uh, to obtain a modified clause? Can the employer lock out? Why wouldn't the employer agree? Why would not the employer agree to uh, making the clause uh, less favorable to the union? Well, Your Honor, the reality of collective I mean, I can see the union not agreeing to it, but why would the employer not agree? Because, Your Honor, the, the, the nature of collective bargaining is that everything in a contract is the subject of a bargain, subject of negotiations. I don't find in many employers, nor do I find many unions, who agree to something without getting something in return for it. It I mean, wouldn't take the much, it wouldn't take much to find a, an absence of good faith bargaining if, if an employer does not let no, the, Your Honor, the employer modify that clause in a way that favors the uh, that you, favors the employer. Your Honor, the, the the law is clear that the employer can refuse a union security clause uh, to impasse. That's a mandatory subject of bargaining. The union the employer does not have to agree to any union security clause. Bargain in good faith, and it wouldn't take me very long to find that that's pretty bad faith bargaining if the union wants to give him a, a better deal than he now has, and, and he doesn't want it. I, <laughs> it would be a very serious question, Your Honor, that uh, in terms of what the consequences, really of trying to renegotiate the contracts. Maybe some employers would take that position. Maybe some would not. We, we don't know. And uh, that goes back what happens. What are the consequences of declaring a clause invalid? And that goes back... Uh, to the original intent of Senator Taft and the Senate and the, and the Congress in enacting the uh, Taft-Hartley Act and authorizing the Union Security Clause. They said they wanted to foreclose and close out the closed shop. They allowed the Union shop uh, under limited circumstances, and it's spelled out in the statute. But thank you, Mr. Geffner. Thank you, Governor. The case is submitted.